to the Web3 Prof Podcast. Good morning and good afternoon, everyone. I'm here with Bob Summerwell, who is the Executive Director at ETC Cooperative. Thanks for being with me here today. Well, thanks very much for the invite. So, Bob, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself as far as how did you get into crypto? Where did this all start for you? For sure. Um, it actually started um, in a pub in Kitsilano in Derby's on a February morning of 2014. Okay. Um, I... Uh, had uh, a pretty young child at the time. Kid had gone to bed. I'm like, right, I'm going to have a beer now. I want to have a beer. Ah, uh, nothing in the house. Okay, off to the off to the uh, off to the liquor store instead. And then I was as I was getting there, I thought, you know, sod it. I'm I'm going to the pub. I'm going <laughs> to sit in the pub, watch a bit of hockey, chill out. I'm doing that. A guy comes sit next to me, sort of starts talking. Hey, you know what? What you know? What sort of stuff are you into? And I'm just thinking, oh my God, please. I just want to chill out. But anyway, he, uh, you know, we, we found pretty rapidly we've got, we had a common background in technology. And, you know, he came out with the classic, you know, have you, have you heard of Bitcoin? And, uh, and it turned into the most wonderful kind of conversation. You know, one of these where you go from zero to, uh, you know, your utopian flying cars future, yeah. you know, uh, maybe you can have robo -log logistics and like cell phoning trucks that like um, are auto buying and crypto payments and shipping and all, all of this stuff. Uh, and uh, anyway, you know, with my, my new friend, he started taking me to, to meetups uh, here in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. So specifically like at Decontrol was where most of the things were. And, uh, and yeah, you know, I started really following along a little later that year. Uh, Vitalik was in Vancouver. He was actually spending the day with my friend, uh, David Lowy. Um, this was um, after the white paper, they'd started development, but the crowd sale hadn't happened yet. I think the Ethereum Foundation existed, but it was, you know, very nascent. So I got to meet Vitalik really early. Um, but I had got other interests myself at that time. My background was as a software engineer in the games industry. So I'd spent 15 years uh, working on FIFA and other EA Sports titles up in Burnaby. Um, the reason I I was aware of Bitcoin earlier, of course, but but had kind of discounted it um, because I was a gold bug, mm. and um, and I'm a software engineer. I know how terrible most software is. Right? <laughs> you know the idea of of putting funds in some program that some guys have written. It's like that or a bar of gold. You know that right. that was kind of an easy choice. Um, but I think I, I hadn't grasped the full scope of it either. I mean, obviously, like beyond, well, hey, you know, this is a, you know, this is a thing that can really work technically. It was also um, not so interesting if it's just money and payments, because mm -hmm. it's like, well, I've we've got money and payments, right? Okay, store of value, but it didn't look like a store of value to me because of the software. 
but what was happening around that time in early 2014 was there was all of this kind of like Bitcoin 2.0 kind of talk, you know, of saying, well, hey, you could have side chains and you could have like more programmability and you got smart contract stuff starting to ha come in and, um, you, you know, really the potential there that various projects were working towards to having something that was more like a platform, right? A platform for running applications, mm. you know, not just money. Um, and the idea of that kind of, you know, unstoppable platform for doing anything like that became really interesting to me at that point. Was this, and when you're talking about this, are you referring to Ethereum itself or are these like things that people were talking about building on on Bitcoin? But well, both. I mean, it, so at that time, um, the white paper, the Ethereum white paper came out in, in December, 2013. So it was like three months old. Yeah. It was just sort of a like, hey, here's an idea. Mm-hmm but it wasn't a reality, you know, there wasn't even a test net or anything. It was just like, here's some white paper and ideas and some people are kind of starting to work on that. Um, but I mean, even, even prior to Ethereum, you had lots of these, you know, other projects trying to do other things. Mm. So um, like some, like two of the really well-known ones at that time were Counterparty um, and, um, colored coins mm -hmm. so colored coins being the idea that like you could like tag extra data onto a utxo that would have some meaning to another protocol running on top what's a utxo utxo is uh as an unspent transaction output uh and you know, if you have a Bitcoin wallet, you just think, oh, you know, I've got this many, this many Bitcoins. But the actual reality of how those are, are represented is you have these, these unspent things, which I think, you, you know, you could think them, of them as being analogous to banknotes, mm. right? You've got what you've got in your wallet, but what's actually in your wallet, you know, is four twenties, you know, a 10, a five, some coins, some quarters, and, you know, that's the actual reality of money is all of these things. And all of those have got like a unique characteristic, right? You know, you've got you've got a serial number on a banknote. You can theoretically go and trace, well, where has that banknote been? Right. I mean, the only, you know, the only real use that there seems to be for that really is is like if you've got giant amounts of stolen money, right? And it's yeah. like, you know, this batch and they're all going to have the same numbers and they're like, you know, pristine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so UTXOs, you can think of the components that, that make up money in Bitcoin. Mm. So the idea on colored coins is, um, that you could sort of like attach metadata to one of these particular items. So, um, you know, you, you could, you could have something that's represented there by that attachment it's basically it's ordinals right you know ordinals kind of happened yeah 10 years ago of of you know and that's something really very analogous to in ordinals you've you've got particular satoshis right and you're kind of you're doing an inscription on the satoshi which is like just writing a little bit of 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 whatever but with ordinals that little bit of whatever is 
could be like a you know four meg jpeg or whatever yeah yeah but but colored coins was was that 10 years ago and counterparty was sort of smart contract on top of uh, of bitcoin 10 years ago mm. so lots of these things were happening um and and yeah you you didn't really have the the breadth of different assets that you do now it was kind of like everything was bitcoin right that's yeah. that's all you had uh and you you started having some you know altcoins that were really all they're just straight clones of bitcoin with some tiny tweak you know whatever the blocks are faster whatever right. you know some you know tiny little thing um most of them were basically like worthless because they were just doing the same thing um some of them though were kind of useful like there was one called namecoin that was kind of like a, a dns you know like pretty name you know so like mapping of a pretty name onto a onto a nasty long hex address right right so you could have a wallet with, with a, a recognizable name uh, right right um so that was kind of like a a fork of bitcoin but like adding a few different operations right. to specifically like whatever ad registration update or what have you so, so there were some of those early sorry um but but what those were doing they were kind of like they were like application specific, right? They did one thing. Right. So it's like, right, this is the one for naming. This is a one for, for whatever, having some shares on a ledger or whatever. Um, and what was unique with Ethereum was this sort of recognition. Well, God, we, we can't like make a new coin for every application in the world. Like, so if you do that, you've got to find, you know, you've got to find people who are mining it. You've got to like whatever, talk to people to use it and all of this. So what Ethereum did was was sort of this recognition. Well, you just need like something that's programmable, right? You need a platform. So in the same way as like, you know, iOS or Android or Windows or the web, it's like, well, you just need like a programming language and it's a, a general platform and then you can build anything on top of that. So, I mean, so Ethereum was like the first in that area, but there were, the idea wasn't new at that point. So when we look at, um, I mean, you're wearing a shirt today that says Proof of Work, mm -hmm. um, Proof of Work Summit 2023 in Prague. Um, so maybe let's get a, a bit of an understanding of when, when you talk about Proof of Work, um, first of all, what is it and why is it important? Sure. So um, Proof of Work is the basis of uh, of Bitcoin's block building and coming to consensus on a on a set of transactions. So um, you you kind of had two innovations happening at the same time in Bitcoin, which are codependent, uh, which is uh, the idea of having a a, a a ledger of transactions, so that you can have you know like digital money and those are formed by having these blocks that are getting created um, and proof of work is the process by which crypto miners m make these new blocks um, and the the codependency there is well why would it why would someone like do the work to make these new blocks and the answer is well because you're rewarded in bitcoin if you're the miner that finds the new block and then it's like well but but how does the currency exist to be able to pay them? Well, that's 
because of the chain, right? So those two things were were inter you know intimately tied together, um, and uh, specifically the in you know that that incentive. You know there were lots of distributed systems, decentralized systems uh, before that, but there was never like money to be able to incentivize certain behaviors before to that. So say Bit BitTorrent, for example, right? You know, BitTorrent, one of the best known decentralized applications there is that was around, I don't know, a, a decade or so probably before um, Bitcoin. And it's like, hey, and you can share contents around peer to peer. Uh, but the problem is you haven't got money, you haven't got incentives. So you have a tragedy of the commons. Well, why should anyone like seed torrent, you know, seed torrents why should you help other people right they're just sucking off your you know your net your, your bandwidth and and everything so what you have with those without those incentives is well yeah someone's going to rip off the latest hollywood movie uh but nobody's going to save you know store your holiday photos because they don't care right but if you have incentives um people can start to care so proof of work uh, is is the mechanism by which Bitcoin mining works, uh, but then also there's there's various other proof of work chains uh, like Ethereum Classic that I'm working on, or Dogecoin, Litecoin, uh, Zcash, um, and what proof of work specifically is referring to is the way that you make a valid new block. There's this like checksumming thing, right, where the, the actual content of the block, um, if you do a, a, a hash of it, which is something that just comes up with like, you know, a long unique number that representing those bytes, um, a miner has to produce a, a valid set of those, but there's an additional constraint, uh, which is saying um, the that number has to be within a certain subset of all available numbers. And this is a thing that they call a, a difficulty rating. So if there was no difficulty rating, then any valid, any block with that correct, you know, kind of setup would be fine, right? And any valid block that gets made by any miner wins immediately. Or then you could go, well, what if you double the difficulty? And it's like only half the numbers are correct. So it's kind of like, you know, the miners are, uh, uh, are throwing darts at a, at a board, right? Mm. And the difficulty is like, what's, how small an area do you have to be in? So what you actually have, you know, at scale with uh, Bitcoin mining now is, you know, monstrously hard difficulty, <laughs> you know, that you can have warehouses full of... Uh, full of these machines running 24 seven and uh, you know, and you're still only gonna find blocks, you know, rarely. Yeah. Uh, Cause you're competing against everyone else in the whole world. So when we, uh, you mentioned Ethereum Classic. So can you explain to us the difference between Ethereum and Ethereum Classic? I can. So they used to be a single project. Um, so like I'd said, the Ethereum white paper was December, 2014. Um, the mainnet went live um, in 2015, in July 2015. Um, and in 2016, one of the first major 
uh, dApps got created on Ethereum. You know, there were various things in that first year or so, but fairly small. Um, but in 2016, something was created called the DAO. So DAO being decentralized autonomous organization. So DAOs, you could see them as kind of like being something that's like a company, like a a cooperative, you know, like a, a, a group um, where you can collectively hold on to funds and maybe you've got some voting mechanisms for deciding what to do or other things. So that's what a DAO is generally. And the DAO was basically like pretty much the first manifestation of that in the real world at scale. So you had basically this incredibly huge application that was built. It was doing like a crowd sale. So, you know, like an ICO, it was um, to, to get tokens in this. Um, but it wasn't capped and like nobody knew, well, what's it gonna raise? So like Ethereum itself had only raised 16 million. I mean, it was one of the largest crowdfunding in the world at that time, right? If you look at Kickstarter and stuff, it was, you know, I think it was like number five or something. It was, you know, big. Um, but for the DAO, it's like, okay, so maybe, you know, if it raises two, three, five million, maybe, maybe 10, you know, that would be a big success. And it went like five, 10, 20, 30, 40, 100. And I think, I think it was like 160 million it raised in the end. <laughs> wow. Just a monstrous, like, um, you know, kind of success. Um, and I think that's because there, there basically wasn't anything else to do at that time, right? If you'd, if you'd got some ether, you're just sitting hodling, but you're like, isn't this meant to be like, uh, you know, a platform for applications? Like, where's the applications? It's like, here's an application. Um, and the idea on the DAO was it was basically a platform for, for funding other projects. So the idea was, hey, you, you want to build something on Ethereum, you know, make a proposal and all the token folders are going to are going to have a vote and decide what the funding would would go to and interestingly you know that wasn't like even that wasn't like a donation model it was like well hey what's the return you know it's like you you know make your proposal on the thing that you're going to build and how that you know how the economics of that are going to work um and you know pay us pay us back and pay us you know some gains so you would so you would kind of get shares in the company or, or you're kind of loaning your Ethereum to that DAP. That's right. Yeah. So so that's what the DAO was. And one of the other things, the other characteristics of that was um if you didn't like the way a vote was going, you kind of had this withdrawal option. It wasn't withdrawing all the way out, but they had this thing called child DAOs. So it's basically like, okay, right, there's stuff in the main DAO I either don't like or I want to do like a spin-off and take people with me, right? We're, we're going to go off and do the NFT DAO, right? Because we are only interested in NFT projects. So, you know, we're going to go over here. So you could do this child DAO and like spin-off and spin-off. But the other thing that spin-off could do is like, okay, whatever, the main DAO is about to like give the money to some stupid project and I'm like done here. You could create your own child down and say, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm off over here. I'm, and, and like my F is coming with me, 
and I'm I'm just in this child DAO, but you could you could you could actually exit that in 30 days. So it's like right, I've pulled it here because I'm out of here, and after that time, I'm withdrawing my F and I'm I'm done. Anyway, what happened with the DAO is somebody hacked it. It was really early days for smart contract tech. You know, Ethereum was new. There weren't really any like good best practices. There weren't like off the shelf mm. components or frameworks or anything. It's like, right, we've made a brand new thing. All the tooling is really new. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna make an immutable smart contract, right? And uh, well, it's not, not quite, they did have an update mechanism. But that was kind of, again, time gated and voted on. So it's like, right, every, you can have a vote to like update the code, but it would take two weeks or whatever. And, uh, and what happened is that there were vulnerabilities in the smart contract. And there were blogs about this from various people saying, oh, you know, we think there's a problem with this, that and the other. Uh, you know, we, we're calling for a moratorium, you know, don't be doing voting. We need to like s slow it down and fix it. Um, but what happened is even though the issue was identified, they hadn't had time to deploy the fix, but the information about the flaw was public. And what happened is some hacker went and hacked it. So someday people woke up and they're like looking at the, the balance of F within the smart contract and it's like getting drained out and it's like, well, what the hell's happening here? Oh, wow. It's, it's like the money, you know, something's the money's get being moved off and we don't know why. And like, oh, uh, you know, and, uh, there's sort of like a, you know, a war room formed and it's like, Hey, everyone, you know, if people can like spam the chain to like slow it down. Um, and then, uh, George Hallam, who was like the communications guy at the Ethereum Foundation, was like, please stop trading. You know, there's this this group with like the exchanges in it. And it's like, stop trading, stop, panic. Um, oh, and, wow. and yeah, when, when things settled, uh, $50 million worth uh, of Ether had been drained off into this dark DAO, this child DAO that, that the attacker had made. Um, there were some white hat hackers who basically used the same trick to save what was left though. It's like, right, that hack's happening. Well, so we can do, back. we can, well, we can pull it off over here and we're good actors controlling like the 70%. Um, but the thing was that was kind of unique about this hack was many hacks, they're done and the money's gone already, right? You know, right, it's, it's done and off and, you know, maybe it could get blacklisted and some exchange could block it or whatever, but it's like, it's done, right? You're not, you're not fixing the platform. It's, or, well, I mean, a lot of those issues are, are actually on exchanges, right? They're not to do with the blockchain. But what you had in this circumstance was you had 30 days before this guy can exit with his money. So that was really unusual. But what that meant is, well, what are we going to do? Are we going to do anything? Like, you know, the, uh, the, the DAO, you know, it's like a bug in the DAO. And also that team had this really strong rhetoric about code is law, right? You know, and it's like, hey, here's a written description of how the DAO works. But they explicitly said, 
in case of confusion, the actual smart contract code is the contract. <laughs> so it's like, well, if somebody hacked it, you literally said that was the contract, right? They're not in breach of the contract. They did stuff that's within the bounds. And it's like, well, but there's a bug in the code. You literally said the code is the contract, right? So, um, so yeah, you had this real kind of uh, uh, sort of moral dilemma and philosophical split that you had within what was the Ethereum community at that time, where it's like, okay, so it's a hacker, but was it okay? Because, like, you know, that they just used what was there. Um, but then if you if you intervene to try and rectify it, well, the blockchain is going to be immutable, right? Like, are you going to go back in and fuck about with it? Was this the beginning of then the kind of movement towards uh, proof of stake versus proof of work in Ethereum? Um, not really, no. Um, so... In the Ethereum white paper of 2013, uh, so Ethereum launched with proof of work, right? Um, and there'd always been a plan to transition to proof of stake. That was that was that was in the uh, that was in the original white paper. Um, but but yeah, I mean, what you ended up having out of the Dow, you know, going on a little bit, uh, was what ended up happening was uh, a a fix was proposed uh, for this, which was basically like altering, kind of like altering the blockchain. It was quite minimal, you know, it was like a, a, a little touch, but it was basically changing the smart contract to be, okay, all that stuff, yeah, forget all that. It's actually just like a thing that lets you get a refund. So it's like, right, we're going to like change the world. Like it wasn't rolling back transactions, but it was saying at this point, that smart contract, yeah, no, it's this. <laughs> and and it's just a refund. And all of that stuff with child DAOs and withdrawals, like all that shit, it never happened. Like pff, squash it back to nothing. Right. And... um. And this kind of split between, like, do you interfere, do you intervene, or or not? That's where the Ethereum Ethereum Classic split came from. Was that Ethereum Classic is a continuation of the original chain and the original project, and the thought that really, well, Ethereum is basically Bitcoin with smart contracts, um, and it's money. And you don't move people's money without, you know, without private keys. Um, so that subset of people, which is maybe about 15, 20% of the total, uh, were basically like, well, no, of course you don't intervene. It, you know, there's not a bug in the platform. There's a bug in a particular application, however huge that may be. Um, but change, you know, manually changing an immutable ledger just invalidates the whole project. Right. So that's where Ethereum Classic came from. And Ethereum was basically like the fork of that, which, you know, did the magic act. Yeah. So when we look at um, mining today, um, 
there's a lot of rhetoric around the environmental impacts of mining, which mm -hmm. from what I understand was one of the motivations for Ethereum to move from proof of work to proof of stake. Yeah. So how have things changed when it comes to our understanding or the environmental impacts of mm -hmm. proof of work um, to what we know today here in, uh, in 2023? Sure. Um, so, I mean, after the Ethereum, Ethereum Classic split, the other kind of thing that came out of that was Ethereum Classic got its own kind of character. And one of those things that came out pretty quick was uh, people wanted to stay with proof of work. You know, people who were in that, it's basically Bitcoin with smart contracts, you know, wanted proof of work forever, wanted fixed supply. Um, uh, and I think where things have changed there is um, quite this sort of naive view, I guess, of electricity use and climate impact, um, which is still kind of prevalent in, in mainstream uh, media is is the thought well you know you've got these boxes these boxes that are just burning electricity uh in a useless way you know to make these criminal coins <laughs> you know it's usually a, a number of a number of these different false narratives tied together you know i think you know this this common a, a common element being well the whole thing's useless anyway you know, there's no real use cases, you know, we're, we're um, you know, whatever, 14 years in and nobody's using this apart from for ransomware and, you know, terrorist funding. So I think I think that's, you know, that's that's an element of it is seeing the whole thing is useless anyway. But there is also this other major piece um, which you see within the blockchain ecosystem who are like aware <laughs> that this stuff isn't just bullshit. Um, but there are a large group of people that, that, that still are of, of, of that impression. Well, but doing that proof of work stuff is, is wasteful. So yeah, Ethereum has spent, you know, did spend whatever, eight years getting to a point to transition to proof of stake. And then many of the other chains have, have, have started with proof of stake. But I think where that narrative is changing and that understanding is is really changing um has happened really probably only like 2020 onwards um and I, um i think really what you've had is um especially with move of mining out of china right 2021 mining basically got banned in china so pretty much all the mining moved to the US and what you and and stuff out of Kazakhstan as well and what you had at that time is this real kind of shifting of energy sources uh so in China yeah you know lots of coal mining power stations so yeah if you've got a coal mining power station that power is being used to drive a crypto mine that's running 24/7 well yeah that's that's not good for the environment obviously but that isn't the reality now of the kind of, uh, of, of split of energy sources that you have um, uh, in the countries where most of that mining is happening and, and, and prevalently the US. Um, and a, a, a real driving factor for that 
is that crypto mining is the most price sensitive business that you can imagine. You're competing against the whole world, right? You know, it's not like other businesses where say, you know, you're within a given country and you're mm -hmm. just competing with kind of peer um, companies with the same kind of rules, same kind of setup. Uh, you're competing with the whole world, you know, with vastly varying regulatory structures, um, energy costs, energy mix. Um, and what that means is, you know, you have to find the cheapest energy you can because, you know, those energy costs are some massive amount of your overall costs, you know, like whatever, two thirds or, or whatever of your, your actual costs. So you need to get to the cheapest uh, power you can. Mm. And so there's really sort of two, well, there's more than two buckets, but two two main buckets of that are uh, stranded energy. So there are, uh, energy transmission is really expensive. You know, the big pylons that you see, you know, they, they're, they're lossy and it's a, it's a really pretty serious, uh, you know, undertaking to move power over long distances. Um, so you do have a lot of uh, energy where it's not necessarily all needed at all times. So is this like on a hot day or a sunny day, we might get a lot of energy from solar or during a flood season, we might get a lot of energy from hydro and we might not, not be able to use it all. So it just effectively gets wasted or unused. That's right. Um, because the other thing is renewables are often very variable. You know, the, the thing that was so uh, sort of beneficial about fossil fuels, right, you know, burning coal, burning oil, burning natural gas, is that it's completely steady, mm. right? You know, here's the, here's the machine and it's, you know, it's, whatever the, you know, the gas is heating the turbines and, uh, you know, you've got a, a, a level power out of it. Same with nuclear. But many renewables are very variable, like you say, you know, solar. Well, is it a sunny day or not? Yeah. Is it the daytime? Is it the nighttime? Um, yeah, with hydro, you know, depends how much uh, flow there's been or, or tidal or, uh, you know, many of these things are are variable over time and then you have a storage problem um, and you also have a an overbuild problem as into to cater for this variable amount you often have to overbuild right you know maybe you've got 10x more than you need in terms of the maximum amount that can be generated because you kind of need you need more to ensure that you at that peak that you, that you that you have sufficient but then the problem is well if you've got more than you need where does that go and it's like well it goes nowhere like a lot of it is just you know excess heat um or on some of those uh you know some things like uh on on methane or gas you know you might have flaring it might be like, right, well, we can't use this stuff. So, I mean, we're either going to vent it into the air or we're going to burn it and it's just kind of wasted. So what you see happening more and more is co-location uh, of crypto mining um, at the site of 
some of these off-grid resources. And what they can be is the buyer of last resort. You know, any excess you have, we're going to buy it. <laughs> you know, it's like one of the analogies I've seen is like, if you're running a bakery and there's some dude who's like, whatever you've got left at the end of the day, I'll buy it. I love cakes, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I'm not going to pay you a lot, but I'm going to pay you more than nothing. Yeah. And so what you know is, well, we don't have to worry about like making too many in the waste. Like it's it's going to be there, right? You've got this reliable um, revenue source. Um, so what you can get off that is this massive incentivization of renewables through the crypto mining in that it can help with that revenue source to get the, the financing in the first place. And then when you have that resource, um, you're not going to get any wasted stuff of it. Mm. So like, there's a company called Gridless who are operating in Africa, various places there. And the kind of the common pattern that they have is there is some underused electrical source, like often a lot of those are hydro. You know, whatever, there was some dam or like something in a river that's been built to provide electricity to mm. a rural village. Um, but they've got more than they need, right? Because you have to build more than you need, both for those peaks and troughs, but also just like expansion. Right. You know, these things have maybe got 20, 30, 40, 50 years like lifespan to them. So, you know, what's the what's the demand going to be in those coming years? You know, what kind of growth might you expect to see both in terms of population or just um, in general, uh, electricity use is, is largely correlated with, you know, improved civilization. If you if you have some way that's never had electricity and there are lots of places in the world that are still in that state, um, well, it means you're not going to have lights at night. You know, kids maybe can't study in the evenings. You mm. you kind of, you've got this sort of wasted, uh, you know, wasted time there. Um, but also for heating, you know, maybe people are burning charcoal doing, you know, they haven't got the pumps to like pump water around. So mm. just using river water. So there's a whole bunch of areas where if you have power, you can make a better life. Um, so, so yeah, if you, if you have a power source, assume that that usage is going to go up a lot so yeah what gridless is doing is is being that buyer of last resort right. co-locating in and then what that's doing is providing a revenue source to support that power uh, availability um but the thing is you know they their usage of that can go up and down as required right if it's brand new may, maybe you're using most of the electricity right there isn't a lot of demand yet as more and more actual demand comes in from those retail customers, then maybe, you know, the prices are starting to go up and that price signal is like, you know, um, you know, good job moving on down the line to the next place, you know, that right, that that's kind of done its work of, of seeding that growth and, and off we go. Are you, and when we're talking about this, you're referring to, um, all proof of work operations, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or Doge or um, all of these different crypto 
tokens have the same principle here. They do, in, yeah. In moving to the cheapest place, in using renewable energy, in finding um, kind of the least resistant region to, to move into. Yeah, that's yeah, that's absolutely the case. Um, I mean, Bitcoin obviously, you know, orders of magnitude bigger than most of the others, but exact same characteristics mm -hmm. with all of them. Um, that not only have you got like you know the simplest and safest and most robust kind of uh consensus mechanism there um but you do actually have something which has got a, a positive environmental story now and maybe not so very many years ago that wasn't so much the case but if you look at a split of energy sources for bitcoin mining over those last three years you know, the, the, the graph of renewables is, you know, moving up rapidly. You know, there's more than more than uh, more than 50 percent of, of mining is now with re renewable resources and, and a lot of that being uh, uh, being hydro and, uh, and and the best kind of energy mix actually of any major global industry. Right. If you look at the energy mix used in you know, whatever, uh, agriculture and transport and uh, electric cars, mining, all of them have got worse, uh, you know, worse mix of renewables. And they're not changing. They're basically static. Uh, whereas that, that crypto mining is, is, is rapidly improving. And the reason for that is because it is so price sensitive, right? It's, it's incentivized to move to the the cheapest uh, places because if you don't you're literally going bust <laughs> is it is it also is it easier to move uh, sometimes i've seen crypto miners set it set up in shipping containers and so they're like relatively transportable is, is that have something to do with this as well uh, yeah absolutely uh that really you have this uh pricing and regulatory arbitrage globally of like well this stuff can happen anywhere <laughs> So if you have jurisdictions which are going to be hostile, well, you're not going to go there. Um, I mean, you have got this sort of a bit of a risk where you see some stories about like whatever corrupt deals with government officials that are, you know, basically like screwing their citizens out of, you know, a good life. Um, but I think those are, are fairly minimal. And what you really have is just like, well, that, you know, the, these businesses because they are serious businesses now you know like a lot of bitcoin mining is done by publicly listed american companies right um so you know those are you know they, they they're going to go to the states that have got the best uh you know best kind of environments and you can move around and um and yeah you know they will um i think there's very few other industries if any that can be so portable. Right. I mean, yeah. obviously like knowledge workers and humans working around, but in terms of like, you know, a physical business with machines and, and stuff, right? Uh, yeah, you, you can't move that stuff around. And yeah. I mean, that, and that, that control is also like with time as well. There's this false perception Oh well, Bitcoin miners, you know, they're just these machines running twenty four seven, whirring, and uh, but the fact is, you can turn them on and off like in no time. Right. So another thing that you have, which is a, a great uh, characteristic 
um, in, in in some areas where it's allowed. So in Texas, for example, they uh, the energy um, people called ERCOT have a uh, a system called demand response, and many other areas have this. So what demand response is saying is, uh, we will pay you to stop using power when we need it. So, right, there's a storm, you know, so notable story in Texas, you know, big winter storm, you know, causing havoc, you know, huge need for electricity for people, you know, putting all the heating on and everything, you know, like literally life and death situation, you know, people dying in the storm. Um, and what you can have is just, you know, all the miners just turned off. It's like, right, woo, done. And, uh, you know, that, that stuff is available, uh, to, to everyone else. Um, and, uh, and hardly any major industrial users could do that, right? If you're running a foundry, you can't like stop heating the, you know, the molten metal. Yeah. If you, if you've got a hospital, you know, you can't like whatever, turn all the machines off. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, you know, that's a, that's a grid stabilization feature where these kind of users being part of that system makes the system more, more robust. What do you know about, um, methane abatement or even flaring? Mm -hmm. Um, where does this come into play as far as, uh, as far as mining yeah so i mean that's another great story um so i mean uh, we often talk about co2 right for for climate change it's it's co2 levels um but carbon dioxide isn't the only warming greenhouse gas you know there are there are many others and methane is actually significantly worse than carbon dioxide um is it co4 forget my my chemistry but it's you know it's another hydrocarbon um but yeah i mean the figure i've seen is that lifetime um methane can be 80 times worse than carbon for its warming impact and you know you occasionally see these stories about you know cow farts are gonna like burn the planet up and um and you hear of um the um i forget what you call them in the arctic permafrost you know permafrost melting is releasing uh, methane and so on um but one of the major uh sources of methane is actually landfills municipal landfills you know that you were just dumping tons of stuff you know sticking a tarp or whatever on the top of it and just leaving it for decades um those so those landfills uh, can produce a huge amount of methane for decades at a time. Mm. And some of that is just vented. You know, some of these, they're literally, here's an open land site and up into the air it goes. Um, others of them are capturing the methane, but then are just flaring it. They're just burning it. Um, but what you have a number of projects doing now um, and it's a small number at the moment, but they're coming online fast, is using that methane as a power source for, for crypto mining. And it's a similar kind of economic situation to some of those, you know, um, power supply for a village. 
is generally for a municipal uh, landfill. That's just a cost for the local government, municipal government or whatever, you know, they just have to maintain that. Mm -hmm. But what you can have with pairing crypto mining with it is you give them a revenue source, right? You're just like, hey, you know, can we come and use your site and we'll whatever share the profits, uh, you know, and you come in and you're you're turning that that vented or flared gas into a very efficient energy source um, and you're, you're, you're generating revenue off that. And, uh, and those methane sources, um, like I was saying, they can go on for decades. You know, they are a very stable thing, right? They're not varying in the day. I mean, maybe it's like more at the start and tapering off over time, but, you know, they, they have a long run. Why, why don't the energy providers in the region just use that energy for the grid? Well, I think it, it, it would usually be, be because it would be too small to, right. you know, to be worth doing that with i mean a lot of these um, stranded energy things they do end up being little microgrids right they're, mm -hmm. they're, they're quite small they're quite compact um and that does give them that unique characteristic where nearly everything else can't use that you know a lot of these are remote and if you've got you know hey go, come and build your factory you know in the arse end of nowhere in a tiny little place you know, oh, and there's only power at certain times of the day. Right. You know, that, that, that really doesn't work. Um, but yeah, given that, uh, you know, 84x worse than carbon dioxide, there are some projections showing that if, if sites for methane abatement used for crypto lining, mining come, along, come online fast enough, you can actually within just a few years from now actually be in a situation where crypto mining is actually carbon negative wow. or carbon equivalent negative right right um so is that what you see uh, like one of my questions i wanted to ask you is like what do you see the future of crypto mining looking like so is that is that where you think we're going with this um because still the perspective is that while well, crypto mining is really bad for the environment so bitcoin is bad um, Ethereum Classic is bad. Doge is bad. Um, so, what do you think the future is? Uh, the polar opposite of that is actually true. Um, a lot of these narratives um, have been changing through this year, and, and even just these last few months—you know, August, September, October—there've been um, some major research papers, articles in mainstream press, which are actually bitcoin environmental positive in a way that we just haven't seen before um so i think there was a series of good articles on in, on forbes um I, f I forget the other ones um but we're starting to see this shift where all of the mainstream stories were always negative right right you know, it's, it's just like hey here's the tropes ha 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 yeah it's like bitcoin uses as much energy as the whole country of sweden or something it was for a minute there right yeah and there's actually a new one of those just this week i don't know if you've seen this <laughs> i haven't okay so the latest fud is that every bitcoin transaction uses a swimming pool of water oh wow okay so you know we've only got limited supplies of fresh water so you know 
Bitcoin was was boiling the planet, and now it's sucking all the water out of the <laughs> the oceans, and we'll leave an arid waste behind. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, in the same way as like with that, you know, using as much as a as a country or you know, or they say whatever transactions like as much as powering, you know, a city for a month or, or whatever. I mean, nearly all of these are. I mean, they're just on their on the face of them wrong, right? It's it's like even if you accept, say that 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 power use thing, um, well, you're mining the block, right? So if you've got ten transactions in the block, it's not like a tenth of that stuff is just for that transaction, right? The the mining is securing the whole chains and all assets in the entirety of 15 years worth of history right. every time. Right. Oh, and adding some transactions, right? But that's yeah. secondary. Um, but the other, like, total nonsense with that is that it assumes that all energy is the same, that you've got this homogenous energy, you know, that if you're using electricity that that is equivalent to the same electricity that say a customer is using in a major city you know i'm in new i'm in manhattan and i've got my fridge yeah you know that that electricity is the same as stranded energy in a hydro dam in a third world nation right right so you know all of that uh, you know it it's one analogy I saw is 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 it, it's kind of like um, oh you haven't finished your you know your vegetables you know don't you know there are people scar starving in Africa yeah you know it, it, it's that I, kind I of I say piece. that to my kids all the time right <laughs> <laughs> and, and really like the reality is more like you have an army of ants that are going around the world eating crumbs right. You're not taking food out of people's mouths. Right. <laughs> what you have is this army of, of ants finding the cheapest and crappiest little crumbs everywhere that are not being used and providing use for those, right? It isn't a zero-sum game. Yeah, that's really good. I think the, the idea around stranded energy is really important, and, and I think that's something that you know we're certainly learning more about. Um, Bob, this has been a really great interview. I appreciate uh, your time um, laying out a good understanding for you know how how mining actually can um, be good and how it can be helpful for the world that we live in today. Thanks so much for being with me. You're very welcome. It was great to be here. Thank you. Cheers.